there are uh, significant turning points in the life of a nation and in the life of the people of God. There are certainly significant turning points in our own uh, individual and personal lives, uh, monumental things, uh, graduations, uh, birthdays, uh, deaths, and weddings. Well, in these significant turning points, there can be smooth sailing for a period of time, and then there are events that happen that forces a response. We are reminded in this section of the, bir- uh, of the book of First Samuel that Israel is in the period of time of the judges. Samuel is a judge, that is, he is a leader in Israel, and a dispenser of God's justice. It says in 1 Samuel 7.15, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. So the book of Judges records a pattern of behavior of which, again, 1 Samuel takes place in that period of time. The pattern of behavior. The Lord delivers the children of Israel. Israel prospers and then wanders from God. God brings hardship. The people cry out for deliverance. God raises up deliverer. The Lord delivers. Israel prospers, wanders from God. God brings hardship. And so the cycle goes on and on and on. And I don't know about you, but I have often asked myself the question, why doesn't Israel learn? Why don't they see the pattern? Why don't they recognize that the foolishness of, of wandering from God and simply remain faithful to him and enjoy his blessing? Well, unfortunately, the same pattern that is expressed in the book of Judges for the nation of Israel can be seen in the life of the church as well. But not just in the life of the church, but also in the individual lives of many people. One might ask the question, why don't we learn? Why don't we stay steadfast and faithful? Why is it when God prospers us and we are enjoying his blessing that we become lax and we take our eyes off of God and view our pleasures and now the newfound opportunities are available to us and we find ourselves less in need of prayer, uh, less in need of dependence upon God and our heart wanders. And so hardship comes and on goes the cycle even in our own lives. Well, this morning we are going to be focusing upon the graciousness of God the graciousness of God, the God who receives his own, who, when in genuine repentance, return unto him. This morning we're going to see God's grace in the lives of the people of Israel when they return to him in true repentance. The story opens with Israel's prolonged misery. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 2, it says, from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath Jarm, a long period of past, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Here is a peculiar phrase. They lamented after the Lord. Oftentimes we read in the scripture of hungering after the Lord, thirsting after the Lord, seeking the Lord, but here it's lamenting. 
And this particular word is found only one other place in the entire Old Testament. It means that they mourned their condition. They wept. Times were hard. And they had a new found sense that they needed the Lord. They were longing for relief from their miserable condition. And they knew that to find it, they had to find it in their relationship to the Lord. What created this exact aching is not specifically referred to in the chapter. Nevertheless, we can read between the lines and understand some of the contributing factors of their distress. First of all, there was grief associated with the loss of life. Uh, Twenty years earlier, there had been a series of battles, and uh, one in which 4,000 people were lost, another in which 30,000 people were lost. It's easy to read those numbers and, and just move on. But that means families were devastated. That means husbands didn't come home. That means fathers weren't pre- present in the family. That means a lot of misery, a lot of hardship, a lot of difficulty. A wasted life, for those were battles that were lost. People had to deal with the grief and the anguish of knowing that here are deaths in vain. There was the death of their leadership, Eli and his sons. Uh, there were the uh, difficulties that were associated with the ark being lost, uh, taken into captivity. And then the ark is brought back and returned, but it wasn't returned to Shiloh. It wasn't returned to the tabernacle. It's almost an exile, if you will, sitting in the middle of nowhere. No worship taking place around the ark. And so their worship was meaningful. Oh, sacrifices were continuing on, but they knew that they were estranged from God. They knew that they were under God's displeasure, having lost the battles those previous 20 years. So as they lamented and as they thought about their misery and their hardship, eventually their hearts turned to the Lord and recognized that for 20 years, they had been following some other kind of way and to deal with their, their misery and their stresses, and it wasn't working. So finally, they're turning to the Lord. Well, we certainly can relate in some ways to some miseries and difficulties in our present time uh, as we think about these deaths. And we're close to 140,000 people that have died because of the coronavirus. Now, that translates into family members. That translates into dads, moms, grandmothers, grandfathers. Uh, A lot of heartache, a lot of misery. Unfortunately, a lot of these deaths have occurred in situations in which they've been isolated from their family. And family members could not even say goodbye. I can't imagine that kind of end of life. Uh, It's hard. It's difficult. Everybody's going through transitions. Everybody's experiencing issues at work. Uh, Some people financially are really struggling at this time. I talked to an individual that's a restaurant owner, and uh, they were just talking about the difficulty of just trying to stay open and stay, uh, stay afloat in this difficult uh, period of time financially. <laughs> There's a lot of misery. There's a lot of heartache. And one of the things I hope that will come out of all of this is that there will be a greater returning to the Lord. The people will see that ultimately they find their, their strength and their confidence in him. We think about all the uncertainty of going back to school and et cetera. But nonetheless, in this particular instance, 
They have a very healthy response to their situation. They wanted a new relationship to the Lord. So Samuel now appears on the scene. The last we've seen Samuel, he was a child. And now 20 years have passed. And uh, he is no longer a, a child, but he is a ruler. He's a judge in the land of Israel. And so we begin by looking at these steps to repentance. And Samuel instructs the people concerning what they need to do in order to return to the Lord. Samuel instructs the people regarding the necessity of serving God single-heartedly or wholeheartedly. Here we are given a quick glimpse of Samuel's ministry. In verse 3 it says, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel. When it says that Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, they had not yet gathered. That happens in verse 5. In verse 5 they're, they're gathering together at Mizpah. So verse 3 does not take place in that context. So we have here a very cryptic way of referring to Samuel's itinerant ministry that's described in verses 15 through 17. Verse 15, it states, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. So in this period of time, all the years that he's judging Israel, uh, in this particular period of time, he is preaching, he is teaching, he's instructing the people of God, and now they are ready to repent. But what are they to do? What are they to do? Well, they are not to follow other gods, verse 3. Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asherah from among you. The Israelites were guilty of incorporating the worship of false gods into their commitment to the living and true God. We refer to that as syncretism, of trying to bring two conflicting uh, forms of worship together into one new religion. That's certainly not how they viewed it. They certainly originally did not see it as one new religion. Uh, they didn't really think about all the ramifications of worshiping these other gods right alongside with the God of Israel. Of course, we don't live in a period of time where there's idolatry, but there's still a temptation with our commitment to the Lord to be committed to other things, to find our trust not in God but in uh, our wealth, our bank accounts, our economy. Uh, the scripture says you cannot serve God and money. You can't have two gods. Uh, you can't have uh, your confidence resting in God and at the same time uh, saying, what am I going to do in this time of moral and uh, financial crisis? Uh, what, I'm helpless. No, uh, God uh, is available to us. We can, we can pray. Uh, so they were to put away other gods. And uh, what are they to do? They are to be obedient to the Lord. It says in verse uh, 3, uh, towards the end of that verse, and serve him only. Serve him only. Uh, it is so easy to serve our own selves and our own desires more than serving the Lord. Um, Philip 
Uh, Richard E. Phillips, in his particular commentary on this passage, says this, and I quote, Added to the difficulty of being different is the reality that idol worship was sensually appealing. The worship of Baal and Asherah involved offerings of ritual sex so as to leverage their powers for fertility. Many Israelites thought this was a more enjoyable way of getting crops to grow than holding a prayer meeting together. And, and so there were, in the uh, worship of the Canaanites, I'm not going to go into this in much detail, but one of the things they had were temple prostitutes. And uh, that was a part of their worship experience. Uh, that was seen as a way of promoting fertility. Uh, that was seen as a way of uh, satisfying the gods, and as a result, crops were going to grow. If you remember, back in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, it says that uh, Hophni and Phinehas were laying with the uh, women that had dedicated themselves to the Lord. They had incorporated this practice even into the worship of Israel. Why? Because it was pleasing. It was pleasing. Well, we're not at that place today, and, I, and I'm thankful we're not, but yet there are many things that uh, we desire our pleasure more than we desire obedience to the Lord. There is a temptation that we constantly face, saying no to self and saying yes to God, not resisting what he would have us to do simply because it's unpleasant, simply because it's hard, it's difficult. Uh, it's not what we want to do. Later in the period of time in the uh, Israelites, uh, it was a matter of worshiping uh, on the hills, uh, high places, because there it was cool, and uh, in the temple it was hot. It was uh, not pleasant. It was so much nicer to go up under the hills and under the trees and be offering sacrifices there. But that's not what they were called to do. They were called to obedience. True repentance brings ourselves under the obedience of the word of God. That was the, what they were instructed to do. And the people responded with obedience. The people did what they were instructed to do. First, in verse 4, so the people of Israel put away Baals and the Asherah. And second, and they served the Lord only. You see, it's more than just putting off false gods. It is putting on the true and living God. It's actively seeking God anew, committed to following his word. So Samuel then prays for the people. Samuel calls the people to assemble at Mizbah for prayer, verse 5. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizbah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. The people symbolically pour out their hearts to the Lord. Verse 5. So they gathered at Mizbah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord. Now that was a symbolic ritual that took place in the uh, worship of Israel. In Lamentations 2.19 it states, Arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the night, watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Let your, lift your hands to him for the lives of your children. So this pouring out of the water was symbolic of the pouring out of their, their hearts unto the Lord. It would, would, would have been almost like a, a catharsis experience, a cleansing experience of confessing their sins and just openly 
demonstrating their need before the Lord. Then, symbolically, they represent their dependence upon the Lord through fasting in verse 6. So they gathered at Mizpah, drew water, and poured out before the Lord, and fasted on that day. Uh, the fasting that is often associated with today uh, has to do sometimes with uh, trying to be healthier, and people will fast uh, in order to promote a, a healthier diet. Uh, some fast out of mere ritual. But the book of Job helps us understand what uh, fasting is really all about. Job 23, verse 12, Job says, Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. True spiritual fasting takes place in which we want nothing to come before our time spent with the Lord. One of the practical ways that I experience uh, people's fasting, if you will, in a secular sense, is in hospital visitation. Uh, when uh, a person has a loved one that is uh, in the operating room, uh, many times uh, an emergency situation, uh, they've come to the hospital, perhaps they've had a heart attack, because, or perhaps uh, there is some other tragedy that is taking place, and uh, they're rushed into immediate surgery, the family gathers and sits in that little room and waits. And oftentimes, well-wishers say, you know, you really ought to eat something. Why don't you go to the cafeteria and come back? They don't want to leave that room. They don't want to miss that doctor that comes in and gives a report of what's happening. That, at that moment, is far more important they're going down to the cafeteria and grabbing a hamburger. That's what is happening in this passage. There's people who say it is far more important to be calling upon God, to be praying, to be gathered here as one people than to be eating. We need the Lord. And so the people confess their sins to the Lord. In verse 6, <clears throat> They say, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel oversaw their spiritual renewal of the people. For it says at the end of verse 6, and Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizbah. A judge was an administrator of justice in the Old Testament. He saw to it that what they were doing was right. He was overseeing the people of God, and they were following their moral leader, and he was interceding for them. So now we have the response of the people to the threat of the Philistines. The Philistines assumed that when the people of Israel were gathering together, it must be to make war against them, verse 7. Now when the Philistines heard that the peoples of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines sent up against Israel. Text tells us that they had gathered at Mizpah for prayer. They really had not gathered to go to battle at that particular moment. <laughs> but when the Philistines saw this great mass of people coming together, they assumed that they were assembling for battle. Uh, they assumed that they were making a strategy, plans. And uh, so the Philistines are going to uh, make a preemptive strike. Uh, they're going to wage the war first. 
they are going to go against them. Now we have a series of responses. And these series of responses, because they have dedicated their hearts and lives anew to the Lord, is far different than the response that they had in chapter 4. They're going to fight again, but the war is going to go quite differently than in chapter 4. In chapter 4, the Israelites had a misplaced confidence. In verse 5 of chapter 4, it read, As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. If you remember that message from 1 Samuel chapter 4, they had a battle. They had gone out to battle, and they had been defeated, and 4,000 men were lost. They said, what happened? What went wrong? They said, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't here. We need the Ark. And so they sent for the Ark, and I talked about how that was a, a symbol of faith. It was not a genuine trusting of the Lord. What's remarkable here is they don't send for the Ark. They don't say, bring the Ark here. No, they, 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 they're going to be crying out to the Lord. Uh, they are no longer going to be worshiping the symbol. They're going to be worshiping the true and living God. Secondly, here the Israelites are afraid. What is verse 7? Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people heard, when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. They were afraid of the Philistines. They had reason to be afraid, for they had been defeated twice before. In chapter 4, they weren't afraid. In chapter 4, they had full confidence in going out to battle because they had brought the Ark of the Covenant there. But it was a misplaced confidence. All too often, a lack of fear is not praiseworthy. For the absence of fear is not always due to having confidence in the Lord. All too often, an absence of fear is the result of self-confidence and arrogance that says nothing can go wrong. I'm in control. I've got this. It's okay. That's arrogance. That's not trust in the Lord. Here, they're afraid. <laughs> they know that they can't handle this battle. They are fully aware of the fact that they are underdogs. They didn't even want to go out to battle at this point. And they're being attacked. And they are afraid. So what do they do? They ask Samuel to pray for them. They deal with their fear appropriately. Rather than trot out the ark, they seek the Lord in prayer. Verse 8, And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord for our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. They persistently seek the Lord in prayer. There is an earnestness and authenticity to their request. Not a mere formality, but an urgency. Notice in verse 8, do not cease to cry out to the Lord for us. Don't stop praying for us. Continue to pray. They just prayed. But they said, don't stop praying. 
there was this genuine turning to the Lord in prayer. It's so easy to half-heartedly pray. You know, it's easy in this midst of this pandemic to offer up a, a prayer that God would keep us safe. God would give us a, a vaccine. But in such a half-hearted way, in, in such a perfunctory way, in a way that many times we even question whether that kind of a prayer is valuable. Is it really going to do anything to pray and ask God to give us a vaccine or God take this away or, or God watch over us, God protect us, God keep us? This was a, a genuine, authentic prayer of concern, not stop praying for us. They speak of their allegiance and trust in God. Notice in verse 8, the people of Israel came to Samuel. Do not cease to cry out to the Lord these words, our God for us, our God. And Samuel indeed prays in verse 9, and Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, passionately, with a sense of great need and urgency. And God grants the request in verse 9. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And then it says these words, and the Lord answered him. The Lord answered him. The Lord heard his prayer. That's the great result of true repentance. God hears when we call upon him. God graciously receives. God who fought against them in chapter 4, now fights for them in chapter 7 because they have truly sought his help. God does indeed help the Israelites. God's help did not mean that the Israelites would not have to go to battle, verse 10. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack them. You get the picture? Can you envision it in your mind? I think it's very helpful in these narrative portions of Scripture to, to just try to, to picture the scene in your own mind. Here are the people crying out unto God. Here is Samuel uh, slaying the animal, putting it upon the offering. And as he's in this, involved in this work of uh, slaying the animals and putting it upon the altar, as he's offering the sacrifices, here come the Philistines. They're already moving to attack. We can think that if we are truly turning to the Lord, that the Philistines are going to go away. They're not going to attack. We're not going to have hardship. We're not going to have difficulty. We're not going to have to face struggle. We're not going to have to face issues in our lives. But often the case is, that it's the very time that we turn to the Lord that we find new struggles, new concerns, new miseries, new heartaches. But what looked like a miserable situation was going to prove to be a blessing. For it will result in a great victory. So too, the things that we dread 
oftentimes turn out to be a great blessing in our lives. However, God came to the help of the Israelites in a demonstrable way. If you look at verse 10, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. The Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. (coughs) Once again, a disclaimer. I'm not sick. It's, It's my lungs. Okay. That thundered against the Philistines must have been heard by the Israelites. It was a huge crash. It was one that shook people to their bones. It must have been heard by the Israelites. But it had two different effects. It encouraged the Israelites. It brought confusion and fear to the Philistines. The events that happen in our lives are like the events that happen in the lives of non-believers. The book of James says that those circumstances that are present in the lives of others are present in our own lives as well. We lose loved ones. They lose loved ones. We get sick. They get sick. But the difference that the event has in our lives is remarkable. It isn't that the event is different. It's the response. It's the response. That's what really is unique about the Christian. It isn't what we don't go through. It's the way we go through it. It's the outcome of the event. It's the grace of God that's experienced in our lives. We are not merely the product of our circumstances. We are the product of the grace of God. Our responses are not dictated by the events that we experience. They are dictated by the grace and power of God. The very same experience can be a tragedy or a triumph. The very same experience can cause some to raise a fist and become angry with God and for others to bend their knee and implore God. All by the grace of God. So, the outcome... God was gracious because he instilled faith in the Israelites. The thundering and the confusion gave confidence to the Israelites. God did not need to do that, but he was gracious in increasing their faith. This thundering is a literal fulfillment of Hannah's prayer. In chapter 2. If you remember when Hannah's son Samuel is born, 
Hannah offers up a praise of thanksgiving unto God for what God is going to do through Samuel and through the nation of Israel. How God is going to bless them. And in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, it says this, The adversities of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. She said the Lord will thunder in heaven. So what does he do? He thunders. He thunders to show his presence, to show his power. Not in an ark, but in the ruling over nature, the ruling over the heavens, the ruling over the thunder. They are strengthened. The Philistines, the Philistines are brought in confusion. The Philistines learned nothing from all that they had gone through. It had been God's grace to them that when they received the ark and brought it into their land, that he brought tumors upon them. And they came into an end of themselves. And they realized that they couldn't do anything against this God. And they said, (laughs) send the ark away. Get rid of that thing. Send it back. And their spiritual leader said, don't send it back alone. Make tumors. Make little pieces of gold. Send it back showing the fact that you recognize that these tumors came from from God. You're guilty. You want these tumors to, to be taken away. And they go through all that ritual and they do that. And the ark is back. But now they are assembled for war. And they have not learned the lesson that this God of Israel is greater than they. More powerful than they. That they should submit to God and let these Israelites go. They will not learn from all that they have gone through. God brings circumstances in our lives and even the difficulties and hardships are a part of God's grace to bring people to himself. To see that we are in need to see that, that we cannot, in our own strength, do what is necessary to be done. And so in First Samuel chapter 7, verse 11, the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below as beth So Samuel establishes a lasting remembrance to commemorate the victory that God had granted them. The lasting remembrance was in the form of a memorial, verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shem and called the name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. This was intended to be an aid to remembrance, a help for steadfastness in the future. It was meant for future years and future generations to have a stone there commemorating this great deliverance of God so they could tell the story. What does that stone mean, Dad? 
Well, there was a great victory here one day. Our God thundered from heaven and caused us to overcome a people that before had defeated us and that were greater than us and more powerful for us, but God gave us the victory. But even though they have an Ebenezer, we're going to see in the next chapter and chapters to come that once again they wander from the Lord. There is no statue. There is no memorial. There is no earthly invention that can keep people walking with the Lord. Now, I, I say that, and it's certainly good. I, I think it's great to have, you know, placards in our home. Is for me and my house. We will serve the Lord. I, I think remembrances are, are wonderful. But they can't guarantee. They, they can't change the heart. And we try so hard to establish means by which future generations are going to remain faithful. Not just in memorials, but I, I think of doctrinal statements of what we believe. And that comes to my mind because I've spent a lot of my life working on doctrinal statements. Working on doctrinal statements for seminaries, working on doctrinal statements for Bible colleges, working on doctrinal statements for the Bible Fellowship Church, honing them, trying to say this is what we believe and this is why we believe it. I've spent so much time on all that. That doesn't guarantee anything. Just because we have something on a piece of paper doesn't mean that future generations are going to believe that. It doesn't mean that's what our churches are going to teach. It doesn't mean that that's what that seminary or Bible college is going to follow. I'm not saying they're worthless. I'm saying understand how futile they are apart from the grace of God. We have to constantly be seeking God's grace for ourselves and for future generations, not ceasing to pray, not thinking we've won the battle, we've arrived. We will struggle all of our days it's one reason why I don't usually have altar calls where I ask people to come and dedicate their lives to the Lord. Because dedication is not a once-in-a-lifetime event. It's a daily happening. Jesus said, take up my cross daily and follow me. Every single morning. It's a new commitment to following the Lord. And without that daily commitment, it's easy for us to lose sight. It's easy for us to wander. It's easy for us to go back to old ways, old attitudes, or new ways and new attitudes. To listen more to the world than to the scriptures, to pay more attention to what a newscaster says than what the word of God says. We need 
to constantly walk with the Lord. Samuel was a, a very important figure in the nation of Israel, verse 13. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the te- territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Last week I said God is not dependent upon people, and he's not. However, God does use people. People are either an aid or a hindrance to the spiritual well-being of others. Samuel was indeed an aid. He was a gift of God to the people of God. After Samuel, things would change. Things will drastically change in the nation of Israel after Samuel's death. Spiritual leaders are a gift to God's people. In the book of Judges, it says this, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And then things change. Things change. Peace was restored in verse 14. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, etc. And it says at the end of verse 14, there was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel ministered to Israel throughout his entire life. Verse 15, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. This is referring even into his old age. Samuel was a judge over Israel. This is a testimony to Samuel's faithfulness. He was faithful in the exercise of his duties. For it says in verse 17, he would return to Ramah for his house. Home was there, and there also he judged Israel. After year by year, going to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, he did that on a yearly basis all of his life. He was faithful. He was faithful. He was faithful. Why is it so important for us to be faithful? So that others can be faithful also. So our children will be faithful. Our grandchildren will be faithful. So many families who in their older age walk away from the Lord leave a trail of misery for their children and their grandchildren. Heartache. Disillusionment. Sadness. The greatest benefit to the next generation is not a monument that you build or a plaque that you put on the wall or a doctrinal statement that you write. It's a life of faithfulness. What a gift that is to the church and to your family and to future generations. May God help us to be faithful, not to wander in times of prosperity and blessing, but to continually give thanks and direct our future generations as well as ourselves to the Lord, who is the provider, who is the deliverer, who is the helper, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, 
who thunders from heaven. Let's pray. Lord, help us this morning to be faithful, not to fall in that cycle of crying out to the Lord, experiencing deliverance, but then prospering, and then wandering from you. Lord, help each and every one of us to be faithful to the very day that we die, carrying out our duties, our responsibilities, interceding for others, living a life of example, and dispensing of justice. May our lives be a testimony, an encouragement, a help, a resource, even as the people of Israel called out for Samuel to pray for them. May we regard it of such an honor when people ask us to pray for them. May we understand what an influence we're being at that point of how our life has been helpful as people see us as a, a blessing, as a means of God's grace in their lives. Oh Lord, may we cherish the times in which people ask us to pray. And may we pray, even as Samuel did. And may we be faithful. And may you receive the honor and glory as you did that day as they raised up an Ebenezer to declare that this victory was by the grace and power of God. May we, at the end of our lives, talk about the victories that God has given to us solely by his power and his grace. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.